If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And as you're turning, let me ask, how well do we do at learning our history and learning from our history? Uh, you maybe saw this, it's been a while back, but there was a video that I think I saw it pop up on Facebook at some point of a, a group of people that uh, went around to college campuses to ask college students of their American history to know, to understand, do they understand their American history? And so they asked them some basic questions. I won't cover all of them, just the, the three here. And they, they visited the school, Texas Tech. So any Texas Tech alums here? We're safe, all right, good. First question they asked is, who won the Civil War? And the first person answered, we did. The next person said, like the one in 1965? Another one said, who won it? Who was even in it? And then the last person answered, America won. And it took almost 15 students before someone answered that correctly that the North won the Civil War. The second question they asked him is, who was our vice president? Most were baffled. We have a vice president, they asked. One said, is this a trick question? The third question they said was, uh, who did we gain our independence from? And one answered, the South. Another said, Canada. Most had no idea. They had no idea who we gained our independence from. Then they moved to questions that they thought maybe they can handle, and they asked, who, who, who married whom on this popular TV show? And they all quickly answered, is this person. They all knew uh, the gossip mill and, and what the show was about and what was going on in this celebrity's life. And, and I couldn't help but laugh at that as I watched and, and think in some way that it's kind of sad that they don't know history. And, may, and maybe you sitting here could quickly answer those questions of which I'm glad you, you need to know our history. But let me ask, what lesson did God teach you last month that you've already forgotten? What about last week? Could you tell me what Ebenezer was and what it was about? You know, the Israelites don't remember Ebenezer either. When we come to 1 Samuel 8, they have forgotten all about how God had saved them. Although for them, there was decades in between Ebenezer then and what happened now. But the fact remains, they're forgetful people. We come to 1 Samuel 8 and we come to people who have memory loss and who are desperate for security. Whatever security came when, when Samuel led the nation in repentance and, and set up Ebenezer is now gone because of the years. God's help for them has been forgotten and, and their enemies are still present. A new generation has risen up and, and had only heard of their fathers talking about the deliverance from the Philistines. Some, and, and, and only hearing about it has little impact on their lives. It's trying to imagine what, what had happened, but they didn't see it with their own eyes, and so they have forgotten. And so in that light, we come to 1 Samuel 8, and I'm gonna read the entire chapter, and Lord willing, we'll make it through here this morning, and we're gonna walk through what this chapter means. I have three points, the, the request of the people, the warning of a king, and the compliance of God. So 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, turn there and follow with me as I read, starting in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. 
The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implants of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. This morning we're gonna look at the request of the people, the warning of a king and the compliance of God. But before we do, I wanna pray. God, I come before your throne this morning and I, I plead with you that you would bring understanding to your people. As we hear your word preached this morning, may we worship, may we acknowledge again that this is your word and this is for our benefit. May we be challenged from your word this morning. May you convict us and change us. May we leave this morning, Father, different than when we came in, be obedient to you, God. And may you receive all the honor and glory we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So first here in this chapter, you have the request of the people. As we come to chapter eight, as I said, it's, it's years after chapters four through seven. Samuel now is an old man, and we're quickly thrusted into a new time in the history of Israel. In verse one, it says, Samuel became old and has made his sons judges over Israel. 
His sons now take up this charge, and Samuel introduces hereditary leadership again to Israel. And his sons are going to take over, but things don't go well. As you see in verse 3, his sons do not walk in his ways. No, they turn aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. I think we've read something similar to that already in 1 Samuel. Corrupt leadership. They take cash and twist justice. They simply disobey God's word. Deuteronomy 16, 18 and 19 says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality and you shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. And they turn around and do the exact opposite of God's word. Justice is now a farce. Like Eli, Samuel's sons turn out to be dirtbags, unwilling to follow their God, unwilling to be obedient. And in verse 4, all the elders then gather together and come to Samuel and, and plead with him. Behold, you're old and your sons aren't following you. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They have an answer. You need to give us a king. They want to solve the evil hereditary leadership by installing, get this, a hereditary monarchy. What an idea. Now understand, and the scriptures asking for a king wasn't wrong. God had already told them just a chapter later in Deuteronomy 17 that they would have a king. That was God's plan. It was a good thing. But God also knows their heart and he's weighing their motives. They were saying, in effect, that they didn't want God as their king. They wanted to be like the other nations. They don't want to be distinct any longer. They want to blend. Let me explain here. God did say in Deuteronomy that they would have a king just like the other nations, but this king would be much different than how the other nations would function and how their king would be. Their king would be and must be distinct and different and set apart. All of those words is holiness. That's what it means. And this is a watershed moment for the people of Israel. Their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. And down the line, they would pay the price for them asking Samuel for their king. And they were not asking for a king as God would have it. No, they, they, they wanted the king just like the other nations have. They wanted a king like theirs. They wanted peace and security and respect. They would see the world and, and what they have, and they would want what the world has. And when we desire to keep in step with the culture and trying to fit into the mold of the culture, we will leave God. We have to learn to disregard the, the world's view of life in favor of choosing God. Today we have the same thing. All, all too often I see it with my own eyes and I hear it from others. Cindy was a high school student, a girl, when she understood finally what God wanted for her in her life. She had been raised in a home where, where there was no display of a healthy marriage. Her father was an angry, violent man who demanded more than he loved. Her mom married not out of love, but out of obligation, and it showed. 
Cindy was saved while attending the high school winter retreat the year before. She would always want to be loved in her life primarily by boys. She would seek to get their attention, but after she was saved, she understood who she was in Christ, and for the first time, she repented of her sinful behavior and found her hope in God and God alone. And Cindy finished her last year of high school dedicated to the youth ministry and looking forward to college. Her four years at state school went by very quick, and Cindy graduated with honors. She had prayed since the beginning of her senior year of high school for the man that would come and lead her. And she had studied extensively with her youth pastor's wife about what she would look for in a husband, but always with the reminder from, from her youth pastor's wife that she would always and should always find her joy and her satisfaction in God. And it would end with every discipleship meeting with a reminder to find her hope in God, to wait for God, to bring the man that would lead her in her marriage. As Cindy finished college, she would be a bridesmaid in five weddings in three years. Still, all without a man of her own. She began to grow restless and dissatisfied. She remembered what she learned about God being her satisfaction, but that wasn't enough now. She couldn't bear to see all of her friends finding love in a husband, and, and she found nothing. Until one day, she met Fred. They took a biology class together freshman year, and he was a nice guy. He came from a good home, attended church occasionally as a child, and over, overall seemed to be a good fit for her. They began dating, and Cindy couldn't begin to see herself married to Fred. She would daydream about it and what it would look like with a life with Fred. They both wanted multiple kids. They both loved to hike and to camp. They both loved to read in their spare time. They seemed like a perfect match, except Fred wasn't a believer. And he really didn't want to attend church at all. He would attend church with her occasionally to satisfy her, but he really wasn't interested. Cindy knew what she needed to do, but she didn't want to do it. She was afraid that this was her last chance. She was afraid of being alone. She was afraid that no one would supply for her. She was afraid that no one would protect her. And so she married Fred. And they both together walked away from God. She chose security over obedience. She chose momentary peace over a lifetime of satisfaction. This relates to what's happening here. Samuel knows that they're choosing wrongly and he wants nothing to do with this request. He's angry with the people, in fact. He says in, in the passage here, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us the king to judge us. And so Samuel goes to the only person that he knows to go to. He goes to the Lord. The Hebrew actually is stronger. It literally says the thing was evil in the eyes of Samuel. And he's at again a loss with the people. They're turning away from the Lord and, and they want their own way. And God answers in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God is giving ex them exactly what they're asking for. And this is bad, friends. They're asking for the wrong king. And they're asking for the wrong reasons. They have the wrong motives. God knows what they are asking and he knows why they're asking it. 
sometimes I wish I had this superpower with my kids. You know what I mean? That I could help them make right decisions. If I could just somehow understand clearly their motives, I could help direct them. But there's a problem with that. There's only one person who has that power, and it's not me. It's God. And if I had that power, there'd be a bigger problem. You're all shaking your head, yes, Jeff, if you had that power. You're right. You too. We're not God. We shouldn't desire to be in the place of God. My kids need more than me. They need God. They need him to help them understand this. Well, God answers Samuel here. He, he assures Samuel that they're not rejecting him. They're rejecting God. Ultimately, they don't want to trust God. They want to trust a physical king that they can see and they can touch. And God instructs Samuel that he needs then to warn them what will happen with this king. And in this, God is incredibly gracious. But he knows what will happen. He knows who they will choose. He says to, in verse 9, that Samuel should warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Other versions say that you should instruct them of the procedures of the king. That word procedures or, or ways is also translated judgments. Now we're getting to the bottom here. God is showing love to them by telling them exactly what will happen when this king comes. We're going to get to that in the second point here, but think about this, friends. Our proposals and our solutions to the problems in life can be, can be uh, completely reasonable. They can seem completely logical and plausible and still utterly be godless. Do you see it here in this passage? And I'll give you a real-life illustration, Okay. Not necessarily a, a godless decision, but a, a one that seems logical and plausible. When I was a, a teenager, left at home one time, I, I went to the kitchen and I decided I wanted to have chocolate milk. Now, when I was a kid in our house to make chocolate milk, we had this magical thing in the cupboard called Nesquik. Anyone heard of that? Nesquik, though, when I went into the kitchen, was all gone. Nowhere to be found. I'm home alone. What should I do? Because I really want chocolate milk. And I'm a problem solver. And I had no access to the internet. Believe it or not, it wasn't around then. So I devised a rational, logical, plausible solution. I went to the cupboard and I found other powders that my mom had. And here was Hershey's naturally unsweetened cocoa powder. Makes sense, right? It didn't work. It's horrible. Horrible idea. Seemed plausible, but it wasn't right. You know, there are two ways to reject God. You can outright reject him and tell him that, or you can say that you follow him, but never really trust him. It's still rebellion to claim to follow God, but then insist that other things be there so that you can feel secure. I mean, wouldn't it be easier to trust God and follow him if you had all the details of what would exactly happen in your life? It would seem like it's so much easier. But friends, that's not trust. That's control. 
deep down inside of each and every one of us sitting here this morning is a strong desire to control God. We don't want to submit to him. We want to control him. We want to have a say in our life. We want to have some pull in our life. But the word says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. We, we don't want to have faith. We want to have peace. We want to have security. And when this seeps into our hearts and our minds, we reject God and we reject his sovereignty in our life. We do this in our lives with people too. When you don't trust them, when you seek to control them. You know, the reason why we have contracts enforceable by law and business is because we don't trust people to do what they say they're going to do. Israel wants a contract enforceable. Israel wants a God it can trust through their control. They wanted a king they could see and touch. They wanted what they wanted. And that drives them here. And the alarming thing in this passage is God will sometimes give us exactly what we ask for as a means to bring discipline into our life. And sometimes, take heart folks, sometimes God will not answer our prayers as a means to bring mercy to our lives. Maybe that will change how you pray or how you respond to prayer. You know, why doesn't God give me a raise at work? You know, additional $20,000 a year would not only benefit me, it would benefit the church. Why doesn't God give me a spouse? Having someone who loves me and supports me will not only glorify God, it would give me an opportunity to, to have kids and raise kids to glorify God. Why doesn't God give me a bigger home? I could finally have more space to use to, to minister to others, more space for my kids to grow up in. And all those things aren't bad things. They're not sinful things. They may not be the things that God says are best for our life. Friends, the grass may be greener on the other side of the fence, but maybe God wants you to have brown grass. Sometimes when God closes a door, he also shuts the window because he wants you inside when everything collapses so that you learn to trust him. Learn to trust him and not the blessings that he brings. The greatest blessing that you can have in your life is the ability to learn to happily trust him. To happily trust in his sovereignty because he's the God of the universe. You know, desiring those things may not be sin, but desiring those things more than we desire God is. And God would bring judgment to his people in Israel. He would give them exactly what they asked for and it would turn out in a way that they did not understand. So the request of the people, second is the warning of a king. Verse 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his 
his implements of war and equipment for his chariots. In verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. In verse 14, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. In verse 15, he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. In verse 16, he will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. In verse 17, he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Do you see the theme here in these verses? Did I emphasize it enough for you? He will take. Six times, he will take. He will take. He will take. And the irony is, is thick here. They wanted a king to give to them. And what does he do? He's going to take from them. They wanted control, and in the process, they lose more of it. They, they sign over their lives to their king. And, and listen, friends, it doesn't just affect them. It will trickle down, and it will affect their kids. He will take their sons, in verse 11, and install them as horsemen. He will take their daughters to be these cooks and bakers to work in the government. He will institute it. He, they will take their property. It won't be safe. Taxes will be introduced. He will take 10% of their goods. He will take their servants. He will bring them on as, their, as his slaves. He will take. He will take. As I read this passage multiple times this week, my heart just sank. Every time I came to this, because I would think, He's letting you know what's going to happen, folks. Why aren't you elders listening to this? You would think in these verses that they would have an opposite reaction to this. They will take, he will take, he will take. And when he's finished, the elders said, good. We want a king. He's not describing to them what those kings are. He's describing to them what their king would be. In all this, they rejected God. And he would answer their prayers by bringing their king to them and in so doing, bringing divine judgment to them. They've sinned in their request for a king. They have rejected their God and they've chosen for themselves. And when we sin, there is always a higher price. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. Jesus said in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We we think that we can just entertain sin. We can play in it. We can stop whenever we want, that we're, we're somehow masters over it. But that's not what the scriptures say. It's not true. Sin takes us in and we serve. And most definitely the people want their cake and they want to eat it too. They were willing to observe God's religion when it made them feel safe, but when it didn't, they turned to now a secular government. And because of that choice, God will hold them to it. He says in verse 18, and then that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And this situation plays out. You can read about it. Within two generations, they would experience this oppression that God told them would come under David's son and successor to the throne, King Solomon. Solomon spent seven years building the temple, but then he took another 13 years building what? His palace. 
How did he get it done? He pushed the people, their sons and their daughters. He pushed them into forced labor. Solomon took from them and they served him. And when Solomon died, it didn't get any better. The elders plead with his son, Rehoboam, for some grace. They say to him, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. Do you know what he did? He responded like the other kings. You know, the other kings? And he wouldn't relent because if he relented, he would look weak. Instead, he boasted. He says, my little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. God told them what would happen. He instructed them. And God would give them over to slavery. Their refusal to believe and to trust God above themselves brought misery to their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids. They would be slaves. And we do this today. Whatever you decide that you need to have, that you must have, that you depend on it for your satisfaction and for your protection, we do it today. And in that, that will be your master and you will be its slave. If you have to be married to find satisfaction, you will be a slave to your marriage. If you have to have marriage to be happy, then, you, then when you're not, you're miserable and you end up making bad relationship decisions. Because it's the idea of marriage that drives you. You know you need to marry someone who loves God, but you're now stuck in romance. And you're a slave now to your satisfaction. And if you're married and your marriage is, is there to make you happy, then when something happens or your spouse lets you down, you're now crushed. You then begin to think that the problem is your spouse. And if only you had a, a better spouse, a more obedient spouse, then these issues would disappear. So you withdraw from your spouse. You look for love in something or someone other than your spouse. Because for you, 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 you find satisfaction only in marriage. If you have success to find satisfaction, you will become a slave to success. You will overwork. You will get jealous. You want everyone else to suffer while you move forward. I see it all the time. You treat others horribly because what drives you isn't their benefit. It's only your own. And you're devastated when you work your tail off and no one gives you credit. No one recognizes all that you've done. They say that an A-type personality of a person is driven by success, but really they're just slaves to success. They have to serve it because it's the only way that they can find satisfaction now. If you have... If you have peace to find satisfaction, you have to have peace, you say, then you're going to be a slave to that. When things start to overwhelm you, you retreat to, to food or Netflix. You need to find peace. That's where the terms binge eating and binge watching come from because you become a slave to that. You can't escape. You, you need it to survive. Do you catch what I'm throwing here, friends? Every single one of us has a king. A, a king in your life is what you must have to be happy and feel secure. The question is, 
Who is your king? Because, because whoever or whatever it is, you will become a servant of it. Who is your king? The people wanted a flesh and blood king. They, they didn't want God as their king. So you see the request of the people, the warning of a king, and last, third, is the compliance of God. Samuel warns the people, and they respond in verse 19. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there should be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. They refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They refused to obey God. And remember, all of Samuel's words will not fall to the ground. All that he said will happen. Instead, want a king over them to judge them, not Samuel. He's old. You know how old he is? 60 or 70. Doesn't seem very old to me. They see him and they see his sons who are evil. And they want a king to go out and fight their battles for him. And I can't help but ask, how long ago was Ebenezer? Do you remember Ebenezer? You know, for us, it was just a week ago that we talked about it. Have you forgotten already? You know, up to this point, who fought the battles for Israel? Who, who beat the Philistines in chapter 7? Who brought back the ark? Who protected them? It was God. And they spit in the face of God, and they've already forgotten Ebenezer. To them, it was just a rock in a place that their dad talked about at one point. It was an old story that their parents would relay, but it meant nothing to them. I remember watching a movie a while back called 50 First Dates. I wouldn't recommend it. In it, the main character falls for a girl who years ago had a tragic accident and now suffers from a short-term memory loss. And she wakes up every day forgetting what yesterday was. And I wonder... Is that what we suffer from as a human race? And God has to be the one who reminds us who we are and what we're here for. He has to be the one who wakes us up every morning and tells us again why we're here. Because we're forgetful people. Israel has forgotten. And they want a human instead of God to fight their battles, to give them security. And they would reject God and his rule over their lives. But this shouldn't surprise us, should it, Bible students? This is the pattern from the garden, isn't it? Humanity rejecting God's rule. Humans thinking they know more than God. They would rather have a human king that would take from them instead of a heavenly king who would consistently give to them. They don't want to trust God. They want a king they can see. Because living by sight is much easier than living by faith. And in the end, God complies with their request. He tells Samuel to give him a king. 
And in chapter 9, we will, Lord willing, next week, or two weeks from now, actually, we'll cover the king that God brings to his people, King Saul. He's an impressive man. He's all that in a bag of chips. He's tall, good-looking, strong, and they will swoon after Saul. He will promise change, promise the restoration of their status in the world. He will promise prosperity and pride to the people. He would give them now a sense of security and peace. But then he would do exactly what God would said, and he would act like the kings would. And he would take from the people. And the reminder again, friends, that I want you to remember God will sometimes give us exactly what we pray for as a means to bring punishment in our lives. Because we don't trust him. And why do we not trust him? Trust in faith. Why don't we have faith? It's easy to have faith to, to trust in God when things are going well. When our battles are being won and we, and we come out of it and we can see it, it's easy to have faith then. We can, we can see what God has done. But what happens to our faith when all the miracles run out? What happens when we can't recall what God has done? Let me throw out a completely random question. How do you know what's under your house? You know, before we bought our house, we had a home inspection. Bob Pilch did our home inspection. Realtor, hired him, brought him in. He comes to our house. I was there. You guys have been through a home inspection. You know what it's like, right? You walk around the house. You look at everything. And he looked at everything. Flew a drone over my house to see the roof. Everything. Every square inch was covered. I thought we're done. And he walks around the back and says, where's the crawl space? And I, oh, it's over here. And this happened in January, and it had just rained. I was told by multiple people. In fact, Chris Van Lue told me this. The perfect time to buy a house is during the worst season. He's right. I, being the amateur, never being part of an inspection, followed Bob around to the backside of my house. He, I show him where the, the, the crawl space entry is. He says, I'll, I'll be right back. I stand there not sure what's going on. And he comes back from his van all suited up ready to climb under my house. How do you know what's under your house? How do you know what's under your house? You have to go underneath and look, right? There's only one way to find out. You strap on a suit, you climb under there. The only way to find out if there's any issues with the structure of your house, if there's any leaks, any water, which water was under our house, is to climb underneath and to look. You have to look. You have to shine a light underneath to see what's going on underneath. See, a lot of you think, well, when that happened, when I, when I got the promotion, when I got married, when I came home after a long, fun weekend, that's the real me. No. That's not how you find out what's underneath your house. You need to wait until it rains. And it pours, and it's black and dreary and depressing out. That's the same for our life. It's, it's when you're under strain, when you just can't get out of bed anymore. 
when your back is against the wall, when the security that you thought was there is now gone, when you can't remember the last time you were happy, that is when you see who you really are. The weakness and the fear and the anger and the self-centeredness and the grasping, all of that, that's the real you. There's this type of faith that the church wants to talk about that looks normal on the outside. And it looks normal as long as things go the way that you think they should go. And you think that's the real you. It's not. This faith is saying, God, as long as you give me the stuff I need, you've if you give me the protection I desire, if you give me satisfaction, then I can believe and I can trust in you. And that's not faith in God at all. It's worshiping things that God gives you, not bowing down and worshiping God himself. Because when those things are gone, you're gone. Why is your faith weak? Why is mine Maybe say, I, I don't hear from God. I don't know what he wants for my life. What should I do? But friends, God speaks in his word. So to not read your Bible is to not listen to God. I've said it before. Do you want to hear the voice of God? Read your Bible out loud. You will hear it. Authentic faith isn't merely believing in God. It's believing God. Believing God, believing his word over your feelings. Believing him and what his word says and praying and leaving self-trust and beginning to trust in him. This is why Christianity is so much different than any other religion. Every other religion plays into your desire of self-trust. Every other religion indulges your self-trust. Every other religion says, here is how you can do it for yourself. If you take these magic principles, whether it's the Buddhists and their eightfold path or, or Muslims and their five pillars, you name it, you can do it. You can match it. You can accomplish it. That's why there's so many self-help books out there. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever walked into a bookstore and look around and see all the self-help books? Do you want to know why there's so many? Because they don't work. I need to write another one. It didn't work. You know, it's hard to pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you're barefoot and naked. And that's what we are before we go to God. Unable to save ourselves. God says, I will take your salvation completely out of your hands. Your problem all along has been self-trust. That's the root of all your problems. It's a desire to be your own God. And I'm not going to give you a religion like the others and tell you to be your own God. It won't work. No, I'm going to take your salvation completely out of your hands. You're going to have to trust me. You can't trust yourself. You can't do 20% and he'll do 80 or even 90, 99% and one. It won't work. It has to be him. It has to be all him. And for years after high school, I was confused what it meant to be a Christian. I mean, how did it look? 
How do you think about it? What do you do? You know, it's one thing to say I'm helpless and I need help. It's another thing to say I am the reason that I'm helpless and the reason that my life is such a mess is because of me, because I, I want to trust in me. I want to be control of my life. I want to be my own God. I want to be my own savior. And when you come to this understanding, you have dug down in the crawl space of your house and you're getting to the bottom of it all. You begin to understand who you are and what you need. Some of you here have never really transferred your trust from yourself to God. You've been religious. You've been moral at times. And you trust God when it's comfortable, but there's times when you don't. That's not a real faith, my friends. And soon you will find another king to put your trust in. Every king says, please me, obey me, and I will bring happiness. Money and success say, find me, and I will make you happy. Marriage says, trust me, and I will satisfy you. So does family. Every earthly king says, disobey me, and I will make your life miserable. Jesus is the only king that if you obey him, he will satisfy you, and whom if you fail him, he will forgive you. He's the only king. Jesus is the one our hearts have been yearning for. We were made for him, and made for him alone. Friends, you were not made to make money. You are not made to get married and have kids. You're not made to be a church member. You're not made for things in this world. You are made for God and made for him alone. And until we understand that, until we believe that, we will continue to chase after things that won't satisfy. Our hearts should yearn for Jesus. And Israel's hearts yearn for Saul. And they'll be disappointed because what they were looking for could only be found in God. Friends, we all choose a king. Who have you chosen? You are either enslaved to something that brings life or you're enslaved to something that brings death. What or who have you chosen? Trust in Christ, friends. Trust in him. He will never disappoint you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And Father, I confess to you the times in my own life when I seek answers outside of your word I pray, God, that you would continue to draw me back into right alignment with you. And I pray the same for your people seated here. Some who, who know better, who, who have learned and have now forgotten. And I thank you for your graciousness this morning to remind them again of the one they should trust in. God, I pray for those that are seated here who are still 
in need of repentance, to turn away from the kings that they have raised up in their life that they seek to serve that are not you. Whether that's a a marriage or a child or a job or security like Israel. They have chosen other things besides you to place their hope in, their trust in. God, I pray that you would crush them in the understanding that their trust needs to be in you and you alone. God, help us to live for you. Help us to remember, to remember all that you've done for us in our lives. To remember who we were before we came to Christ. This thrills my heart, God, to remember what you've saved me out of and saved me in too. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for these people seated here. And I pray that we would continue to trust you, to grow in our relationship with you, to love you. And I pray for those that are seated here that don't know you. Maybe have a facade up to tell everyone else that they do, but they don't. They don't trust in you. They haven't turned from self-trust. They haven't turned from themselves to be their own savior, and they need to turn to you. I pray that you would bring faith and conviction and repentance to them. May they turn from the world and turn to you. And may you be glorified as you are in all of this. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.